This has come to the table. Bible studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. These studies are presented every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at our church at 3800 East Pershing Boulevard in Cheyenne, Wyoming. If you'd like to contribute to these studies, you can make a donation at www.myntcc.org backslash Cheyenne WY dash giving. All right, so Bible study, First Peter it is. Now we're in chapter 2, and what we're going to begin in tonight, we ended in verse 9, the fifth paragraph of the chapter, where he says, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Now, that's where we left off last week. We spent a lot of time breaking down what it meant to be part of a chosen generation and a royal priesthood and a holy nation and a peculiar people. But this leads us into verse 11. That's paragraph 6. Verse 11 where he says, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from, from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. Now, what does he mean here? Well, this is where he begins beseeching us. He's just, tell he's just finished telling us that we are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a peculiar people. You look at the all the adjectives in those statement in that statement there: chosen, royal, holy, peculiar. In other words, in every sense of the word, we are set apart from the rest of the world. So, having just broken all of that down, reminding us that we are set aside for the purpose of God and for the glory of God, we're set aside for that this God that has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light, and that though we were not a people of any particular identity before, now we are. Now he pleads with us to live it. And he says, I beseech you. That's one or two steps short of begging, okay? I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims. What's that? That's the reminder that this is not our home. This world, though it is beautiful, though it is made by God, in its present state, it is not our home. It is fallen, meaning the human race that occupies it is fallen. So it's not our home. We're strangers in this land now. When we came into the faith of Jesus Christ, when we came into the faith, when we were baptized into the body of Christ by the Spirit of God, all these by the blood of Christ and all of that, this ceased to be our home. We became strangers and sojourners in it. He says here, pilgrims. Well, what's a pilgrim? We all know what a pilgrim is. You remember that from elementary school. Every year, they, uh, when it came time for Thanksgiving, you heard the story. And you saw the turkeys on the wall and everything, all the other decorations that they would put up. And, and you made the little hand print turkeys. And, you know, we all did that. The pilgrims, why were they called pilgrims? Because... They were travelers. They were in transit from their previous home 
to a new home. Once they got here, they weren't pilgrims anymore. They were making this their home. But we are pilgrims in this land. We are travelers. We are passing through. We're here for a few decades and then we're gone. We're out of here, man. And then well on our way towards that, that inheritance incorruptible that Peter talked about in the previous chapter or earlier in this chapter. So he says, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul. Now, why does he encourage us to do that? Well, again, go back to the previous, go back to the previous paragraph where he just finishes telling us that we're a chosen generation and a royal priesthood and a holy nation. If we are these things, if we're chosen and royal and holy and peculiar, then we let's live like it. Let's live like it. We've got to live like it or we're no different. We don't demonstrate any different kind of a quality of life. And I don't mean quality as far as good or bad. I mean quality as far as what it actually is composed of. If we're not living any different, how are we any different? Abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. And the reason is right there in the way that he describes it. Why abstain from fleshly lusts? Because they war against the soul. That's why. Now, you'll always have people that'll want to take things to an extreme and say, you know, that, well, then anything, therefore, that feels good to the flesh must, therefore, be sinful and must be avoided. Like, well, no, and that isn't really scriptural at all. He's talking about avoiding fleshly lusts. And we know what lust is. Reverend DeRyder actually talked about it a few weeks ago, uh, was preaching on it uh, a little bit a few weeks ago when he mentioned that lust is, in present day English, is almost always associated with, you know, sexual desire. But what lust actually is, is any kind of ardent, driving, compelling desire. Now, there are people that are ruled by all kinds of lusts in, in, in that uh, purest context, a lust for money, a lust for power, a lust for recognition, a lust for admiration, a lust for, well, sexual lusts are also very much a part of that. And they just, it just rules their life and it dominates them. It dominates their relationships and their thinking, and it dominates the de their decision-making. He says to abstain from these things. Why? Because they war against the soul. That is part of the cross that all Christians need to bear. What's that? The spirit and the soul got saved. The body didn't. When you came into saving faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, your spirit and your soul were transformed. You were changed on the inside like that. But your body is the same old wretched flesh that it ever was. And we're not saying that out of uh, hatred for the body that God has made. We are still fearfully and wonderfully made. So, you know, don't just meditate on the negative on it. You know, remember the positive of it also. We're made in the image of God. Let us not despise that. But as far as the sinful nature that we inherited from Adam, thanks to his rebellion and Eve's rebellion back in the garden, that's what we war against. The flesh doesn't care about right or wrong, doesn't care about good or bad. It just cares about whatever it cares about. And it tends to war against the soul, the soul of the righteous, being now inclined towards God and godly things. So having said that, so this is verse 11. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles. And we know what the word conversation is. We explain that. That means your entire manner of life. Not just the words that come out of our mouth, 
but the deeds that come forth from our members, right? And we talked to, to use Paul's language, yielding our, in, our members as instruments of righteousness rather than instruments of unrighteousness to sin and to death. So he says, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. What's that mean? We got to keep it straight before the unbelievers. We have to keep it straight before the unbeliever and the sinner. And it, we're going to get into more detail in the next paragraph on that too, because this all of this just unfolds beautifully as far as um, how we should be towards secular authorities, how it should be within a marriage, what the hard limits of secular authorities are, what natural and earthly authorities are. All of that's coming up here in the next few paragraphs. He says, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conversation or your manner of life honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may see, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. It's very easy to understand. We keep it straight before the sinner and the ungodly and the unbeliever. They're going to see by our good works what our actual character is like, and it's going to speak to the truth. It's going to speak the truth concerning what we really are and what we really believe. And it even says here, they will glorify God in the day of visitation. It's all going to come out in the end. They're going to see the truth of it in the end. And so whereas they found fault with you for different things that you did, thinking that you should have done other things, they'll behold your good works, and ultimately they're going to end up glorifying God. Now, in the very next verse here, verse 13, next paragraph, he says, Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man, for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme or unto governors as them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers or for the praise of them that do well. For so is the will of God that with well-doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. And there's that whole paragraph right there. Now let's go back and let's chew through this thing. Verse 13, submit yourselves unto every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. That's the whole paragraph. It's verses 13 and 14. It's one, or excuse me, it's, it's one whole sentence. Verses 13 and 14. Submit yourselves unto every ordinance of man. What's that mean? Obey the law. And it was important for him to bring this up because there have been believers in Peter's time and there have been believers in time since that think, okay, well, I'm a new creature in Christ now. Uh, I'm no longer under the law of Moses uh, and therefore I'm above the law in general. And so I don't really need to submit myself to the laws of men. I am now above all of that and I can just do whatever I want because I'm a child of God. Oh, no, 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 no. Yes, we are transformed. We've got a new heart. We've got a new nature. And, you know, a lot of the laws of mankind are actually quite redundant to the believer now because, well, were you thinking of going out and robbing a bank today? Well, no, of course not. It didn't even enter into your mind or into your heart to do because you're, you weren't going to do that anyway. You're a new creature. 
Likewise, you weren't pondering going out and shooting up a mall or a school. It, it, it wasn't even entering into your mind or your heart because it's not according to your nature anymore. We're different now. Nevertheless, for testimony's sake, if nothing else, and it's not just that, but for testimony's sake, we still need to be in subjection to the laws of the land. We need to obey the laws of the land. This ties right back to what Jesus, Jesus our Lord was saying back in the Gospels when he said, render unto Caesar therefore the things that are Caesar's. Now that's a much more specific example. He was talking about tribute or taxation. And so we can rail against taxing all we want and it may, it may feel like robbery or extortion, but nevertheless, it is the law. And so we're not anti-taxers as far as trying to get people to abstain from doing that. We pay our taxes. We reap the benefits of those taxes in many cases, or in some cases. So let us not utterly despise them. Um, we might chafe at them sometimes, but we still have to obey the law. We still have to obey the law. He says, submit yourself to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme. Okay, well, there's the injunction to submit ourselves to earthly authorities, rulers, whether they be monarchs or even elected rulers. They're there, and we're under orders to pray for them anyway. Or unto governors, verse 14, unto governors, as speaking of governors, as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers. Now, see, this is the reason here, okay? We have to remember that all earthly authorities are ultimately established by God. They're ultimately established by God, whether he, whether he moves the machinations of systems and governments uh, to place people in power or whether he allows those machinations to move and put people in power. And, and you could have a debate about that. Which is it? Well, I think it's both, honest, to be honest with you. Either way, it is God that sets up governments and it is God that tears those governments down. And so we as believers, being chosen, being royal, being holy, being, holy, being peculiar, we want to have and we need to have a good testimony before the unbeliever. Because when the, when the believer has a bad testimony, what does that do to the body of Christ? Makes the whole body of Christ look bad. Makes the whole church and the whole ministry look bad. It brings shame to it rather than glory to our Father's house. And it gives the ungodly occasion to find fault with every single one of us. And worse, it gives them occasion to find fault with God. These are your followers, God, and look what they're doing. They're terrible. Have thought about it for a while. For a while, I've wanted to make up some church decals, you know, to stick on the back window of our car. But the thing is, when you do that, if you're a curb jumping, lane swerving, hyper aggressive road warrior of a driver, and you've got a big old New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne sticker on the back window of your car kind of give your church a bad name. So I don't know if we really want to actually have those made or not, but I am still thinking about it because it'd be nice to kind of get our name out there in the community. But, but then maybe, I don't know, maybe if we did have those made up, maybe it would kind of encourage some of us that are prone to um, a bit of aggression behind the wheel. It might help us to remember, whoa, I need to dial it back a few pegs. I got them representing my church on the back of this thing. And that happened to me. Actually, it did. Back in Bible college, we had some window decals for the Bible college, said New Testament Christian College. 
And uh, being a young man, around about 25 years of age at the time, I was still pretty aggressive in traffic in, in those days. And part of that was the traffic, not so much me. It was, uh, it's, it was you know, South Hill, Puyallup, Tacoma, Washington, the environment there. It was pretty bad. But I realized, if I'm going to be, if I'm going to be, uh, I can't really be an aggressive driver. I'm representing my school. I'm representing the ministry. I'm representing God. I can't be one of those people that's just a jerk behind the wheel. It's just not good. All that ties into this. He says, obey, submit yourselves to every ordinance. So does that mean that if I'm speeding, am I going to hell? I'm not going to go so far as to say that. But we do have the admonition here. Hey, bring it in. Let's be mindful of the law. Let's not be crazy. We want to obey the law for a testimony. He says, whether it be to the king as supreme or unto governors. So it's not just obey the supreme law in the land. It's Obey all of those that are appointed under that supreme law. Unto governors as unto them that are sent by him, God, for the punishment of evildoers or for the praise of them that do well. We have to recognize that in most cases, the government's not your enemy. That might feel like it sometimes when they've, they've got regulation that's completely over the top that puts a cramp on your industry that you make your living in or that puts a cramp on your ability to even function or just costs you a lot of money, you know. It, but ultimately what they're for is for the punishment of evildoers. Why? So they don't do evil. And for the praise of them that do well. And then verse, six, verse 15 is what really puts the spike in it. He says, for so is the will of God. And that's kind of what really binds us right there. It's the will of God. That with well-doing, that means good works, obedience to the law and the ordinances of man, that with well-doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. What's that? Jaw, jack, and fault finders who just run their mouths and don't understand what they're criticizing. They don't get it. Well, this brings up another issue, doesn't it? Well, what if the law conflicts with the commandment of God? And this is, this is coming up now. This is the third time it's coming up. It came up in the afternoon Bible study over in Matthew chapter 10. And uh, it came up, it was brought to me in a question Sunday after the service concerning uh, authority and, and things like that. Well, let me give it to you this way. Uh, and this is the overarching principle on the whole subject, okay? There are authorities all throughout life. Children are under the authority of their parents. Wives under the authority of their husbands. Employees under the authority of their employers, citizens under the under the authority of their governments, whatever that governmental structure may be. Here's the question. Are there hard limits to earthly authorities or are they absolute across the board? Well, when you were growing up, did you ever see your mom and dad in a conflict with one another concerning what you should do? They shouldn't have seen that, but a lot of times that happens because mom and dad aren't always perfectly in in, uh, in harmony with one another, though they ought to be a lot of times that they just aren't. And there's disagreements that have to be worked through and all of that. Well, what is the kid supposed to do? Dad says this, but mom says this. Well, what's he supposed to do? Yeah, well, you have a problem there. It's a conflict in authorities. Okay, well, what happens when... So you haven't answered the question. Well, we're, we're getting to it. What happens when... Uh, your 
your boss wants you to do something that's illegal. Well, there's a conflict in authorities. You're under the boss's authority, but you're also under the law's authority, but there's a conflict. So what do you mean by that? Give me an example of that. Well, how about just some kind of dishonest business practice that he wants you to do? Well, what happens when the law of the land requires you to do something that the word of God has forbidden? Well, that's the ultimate example of a conflict in authorities. What do you do? Here's the general rule. Where there's a conflict of authorities, you have to obey the greater authority, don't you? So boss wants you to commit a crime or do something dishonest, you know, commit fraud or something like that. But the law says you can't do that. Well, you better obey the law. Why? Because the boss can't throw you in jail. Worst he can do is fire you. And frankly, if he's trying to get you to do something that's unethical anyway, you don't want to be working for him. Not as a Christian. Many years ago, I had an opportunity to get involved in the law field, uh, to get involved in, uh, to get training as a paralegal, attend some kind of a, a series of classes to prepare me for work in that. I had the opportunity to go there and I was speaking to a man of God about it and a, a wise man of God. And he, he really just kind of, Look kind of sideways at that. I mean, he didn't tell me what to do, but he just said, oh, brother, you don't want to work. You don't want to work for that. You don't want to get involved in that. He said, lawyers are so crooked, they got to screw them into the ground when they die. <laughs> and I got a laugh out of that because I just never heard that before uh, that I could think of. And it was, and it's, well, is that fair? Is that true? Well, they've made their own reputation. They really have. Hence, you know, the, the, the volumes of lawyer jokes that are out there. So I kind of just, I just avoided, I didn't kind of, I just, I avoided it altogether. I, I, I changed my plans. I did not pursue that particular course. You want to work in an industry that you can be honest in, you know? Again, for the reasons that Peter's been talking to us about here. So he says, under governors, well, we're talking about, excuse me, hard limits of authority. Well, what about the authority of a husband over a wife? Well, this has come up. Now, there's some groups that are absolute on this sort of thing. They say, well, a husband has absolute authority over his wife. Well, that really isn't biblical, okay? Because a husband is not God. And even though there is, as, as per natural order and as per divine ordinance, okay? Yes, a husband has authority over his wife. But as we said on Sunday morning, his authority, a boss's authority, a husband's authority, a parent's authority, a civil authority, whether appointed or whether born, whatever it may be, all earthly authorities have hard limits. And the hard limit of earthly authorities is their authority ends where they begin requiring a person to sin. That's where the limits are. So does a father have uh, authority over his children? Yes, but his children are not required to obey him if the father requires them to sin. That doesn't mean that they're free from everything in his authority. It means that they're free as far as that requirement goes. Same thing with a wife. So, well, I, say I don't agree with that. I think the husband has all authority over a wife. Okay. So when that wicked man tells his wife that she has to go prostitute herself to bring more money into the home. Is she 
required by God to obey that. And that might sound outlandish, but it's not. There are men that have done that. What if he requires her to go shoplift and go steal something or, uh, or get into uh, or conspire with him to commit crimes like, uh, like counterfeiting or fraud or something like that? There are a lot of evil men out there that have made their wives their accomplices in crimes. They are not required to do that. So what if he tells her he can't, she can't go to church? Well, the Apostle Paul wrote, if we credit the Apostle Paul with the book of Hebrews, he wrote to forsake not the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. Well then, you tell me, would it be right for her to forsake the assembling of the saints just because her unbelieving husband required it of her? Well, no. No. Now that doesn't mean that she treats him with contempt or with disrespect. But if, we've all, if we're already in agreement that worldly authorities, earthly authorities, natural authorities have certain hard limits, then the only thing that we really just need to have an agreement on is where those hard limits are. So, and, and even with that, even with that understood, okay, those hard limits don't give us a right to be contemptuous. They don't give us a right to be disrespectful. They don't give us a right to just want to burn it all to the ground and just say, forget about it, all right? These things should not, should not cause complete destruction all around us. But when there's a conflict of authorities in the hierarchy in which we're in, we have to obey the greater authority. And in, in the afternoon Bible study, we were in Matthew chapter 10, uh, pretty close to the end of the chapter, where Jesus begins teaching. He begins teaching on the subject of not coming to bring peace, but a sword. And he begins talking about what that's all about. And then he says, and whosoever loves, uh, whosoever loves uh, son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whosoever loveth mother or father more than me is not worthy of me. Well, he's establishing a hierarchy right there. Yes, we are to love, honor, and obey our parents. Yes, we are to love, provide, care for, and, and raise and discipline our children. But Christ must be first, even in all of that. And so we cannot love mother or father more than Jesus. We cannot love son or daughter more than Jesus. And we cannot love husband or wife more than Jesus. So family is of paramount importance, yes. But God is of greater importance. And as we mentioned this afternoon, when you have that understanding in your mind the right way, then it properly shapes all of the other things. And so when the love of God is the greatest and most important love in your life, and therefore obedience to God is the greatest and most important obedience in your life, then all of the other loves in your life and all of the other obligations in your life begin to take on their proper perspective. And they come into line behind that. Thus, we love and obey God well, let's let's look at it both times. Let's look at it in, in both contexts, love and obedience, okay? If we love God, then we will rightly love our spouses, our parents, and our children. And if we are obedient to God, then we will rightly obey those persons and institutions under whose authority we've been, uh, we, we've come, okay? So if we're in obedience to God, then we will obey the law of the land, rightly. And wives will obey their husbands rightly, not in wrong things. And children will obey their parents rightly. And 
And employees will obey their employers rightly. So, well, you're really stretching there. Oh, no, 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 because we're going to talk about it in paragraph 8 here. So, submit yourselves unto every ordinance of man, unto every ordinance of man, whether it be to the king as supreme or unto governors as them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. For so is the will of God that with well-doing you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. You take away all their reasons to find fault. And then he clarifies here in verse 16, because it's still part of the same sentence. As free, that's you and I, and not using our liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. So we say, well, I'm free. And the sun sets free is free indeed. I'm, I'm, I'm a free person. I have liberty in God. Yes, we do. But we are also cautioned by at least two of the apostles, definitely Peter, definitely Paul. We are cautioned by them not to use our liberty either as an occasion to the flesh or as a cloak of maliciousness. We are not to, to use the liberty that we have in Christ as an excuse to do that which is wrong, foolish, uncharitable, or even reprehensible. We're supposed to be as chosen, as royal, as holy, as peculiar. We're supposed to be better than that. We're supposed to be an example of righteousness and of godliness and of holy living. So, we're about out of time here. Verse 17. I think we can get into this briefly. So he says, honor all men. Verse 17. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. For this is thankworthy. If a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. All right, let's go back to this verse 17 and verse 18. They're two separate sentences. He gives us clear instructions. These are commands, okay? Honor all men. Okay, well, that's pretty inclusive. That means all men, right? So sinner, saint alike, honor them all. Treat people with respect is what he's saying. Treat them with dignity and respect because even the lowly and the wretched sinner living an abominable life is still made in the image of God. There's a degree of default respect that is owed that person as being made in the image of God. Now, not to worry. God is their judge. He'll handle that. We're not supposed to be holding people in contempt. We're supposed to have the love of God shed abroad in our lives, and thus we should treat people with respect and with honor. So he says, honor all men, Love the brotherhood. Now, who's the brotherhood? Well, that's the church. That's you and I. And, and that includes the sisterhood. So, you know, you can call it the sisterhood too. It's, it's default across both, both sexes. Honor the king. Well, he says, honor all men. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. There's no question about what that means. Honor the king. All right, that's secular authorities. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear. Oh, okay. Now, what is he talking about here? Well, is he talking about slavery and all of that? Well, there was slavery throughout the land in those days. He's not condoning it, but, but that's the system that was in place. And so 
as Christians in that time. And by the way, slavery is still very much alive and well all over the world. It's just very much under the radar in places where it isn't considered legal, okay? And no, it's not good. It's not right that a person should own another person. There's something just inherently wrong about that. But in the society that we're in, he's giving them instructions. Because we're made free by Christ, but if they were still a slave owned by someone according to the laws of that land, they had to find a way to work within, the, work within that framework. And so he says to servants, be subject to your masters. And that also, that ports over perfectly to the employer-employee relationship. It really does. It doesn't mean that the boss owns his employees. It just means that there's a hierarchy there that wherever you're at in that hierarchy, we need to act in a way that brings glory to God. If we are employees, we ought to be subject to our bosses with all fear and not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. Now we're going to bring it to a halt here because this actually blooms into a, a, a broader teaching that I want to get to in greater detail next week. But let's just, let's end it with, let's end it with this. Well, let's read through the whole paragraph. We'll teach on it next week. Be at the will of the Lord. So honor all men, he says, love the brotherhood, etc. And then he says, servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, which it's easier to do, but also to the froward. That's a whole lot more difficult, okay? For this is thankworthy if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. Now that's where it really gets hard, okay? But it's still there and it's still required of us. Verse 20, for what glory is it if when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently. If ye be buffeted for your faults, ye take it patiently. In other words, what, what, what good is that? You had it coming to you. You know, you did whatever. You messed something up and then you, know, you got reprimanded for it or whatever. But if when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. And he tells us why in the next paragraph. And we'll get to that Again, be at the will of the Lord. We'll get to that next week. Thank you for listening to Come to the Table, Bible studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. Included in these presentations are red-letter studies on the life and teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ, historical studies on the Old Testament, topical studies on biblical doctrines, and practical studies on Christian life. If you enjoyed this presentation, you can support our efforts by contributing at www dot myntcc.org backslash Cheyenne WY dash giving.